don't have to remind you, but next Sunday is Easter, and we want to encourage you to be here, certainly, and bring a friend. There are some Easter invites that also have the big gospel story. If you would like to just read through that and familiarize yourself with that, that's something you can share, but also the times are on the back, and so we encourage you to take some of these as you leave this morning and invite someone. We know that people are more, uh, more open to coming this next Sunday than any other time during the year. Statistics tell us 50% of the people who don't go to church, if they were asked, would come on Easter. So we want to ask you to invite. Pray, invest, invite, and take some of these with you. The times are on there, and we encourage you to go bring someone with you for Easter services. We also have two Saturday services, and encourage you to consider that too if you would like, Uh, particularly if you have children. It'll be a great time, and so uh, you make sure to pray and invite, and we'll see how God works in the days ahead as we celebrate our risen and resurrected Lord. Well, we've been in a series about miracles, and today we're looking at the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. And we hear this metaphor used in our popular uh, culture even today. And so as we look at this, this story in Matthew chapter 14, I have a question to start the sermon with. And the question is this, are you brave? Are you a man or a woman of courage? If I asked those who are close to you, good friends or family, is he or she a person of courage? How would they respond? How would they answer? I, I want to show you a couple of, uh, of people that you probably know. And, uh, you know, when we look at these, you know, people respond. There are three different really viewpoints or philosophies about bravery. And when I'm talking about bravery, Encourage. I'm using them synonymously this morning. So when we talk about that, you know, some people believe this is how I can be courageous. This is how I can be brave. The way that you do that is you just, you have a great attitude. You have a good self-esteem. You tell yourself you're smart, you're strong, and doggone it, you can do it, and you will do the right thing, and just have a really positive self-talk and a very optimistic attitude about life. I can do it. I can do it. I'm strong. I'm powerful. I'm smart. I'm a good man. I'm a good woman, and I can do this. But honestly, that doesn't really help when the, the building's on fire and it's not your family inside. You know what I mean? That's just optimistic for you. So that's probably not an approach. That's, that's good to be optimistic, but that doesn't necessarily make you brave. Others might take the more stoic approach, and uh, we see this a lot of times in movies. We see it Uh, A lot of times, particularly with war heroes, that, you know what, I'm going to do what's right. I am going to stand for what's right. This is my duty, and I'm going to do it. And that's one approach, and certainly people do that. Certainly people are brave and courageous uh, because they have a principle, because they are telling themselves, you know, I will stand no matter what the cost. But Scripture talks about another type of courage or bravery, and it's founded upon this principle. That because of who Jesus is, and because he is my creator and sustainer of life, because he is my Lord, because he is my Savior, I follow him. Even when it's hard, I will do what's right. 
If you've come to Rock Point very long, there's one expression, there's one quote that you will hear me say. If you've come here a year, you've already heard this a couple of times. And it's the definition of faith. Faith is doing everything you honestly and ethically can and trusting the rest to God. It doesn't mean you do nothing, but what is honest and ethical. Now, I want to share a couple of stories with you. The first one is a guy, a guy named uh, Aaron Feiss, and this happened last year in 2018. Many of you are familiar in Florida uh, at Douglas High School. He was a coach there, and it was that situation where there was an active shooter, and a couple of people had already been shot, and when Aaron Feiss, uh, when the, the shooter came into the, the larger room they were in, Aaron Feiss was there, and there was a girl standing next to him. They were close to a door. And when the shooter took aim at the girl, he pushed her literally out the door, and he was shot three times, and he died. And so we would say that was bravery, but that was that impulsive bravery, and that is certainly very admirable. Some of us would be willing to, certainly all of us would hopefully be willing to do that for our children, our family, and some of us for someone that we knew in, in that moment that it's the right thing to do, particularly someone who's younger, someone who can't defend themselves. But that's a split second, and that's what's in you kind of comes out of you. So that's certainly one type of bravery. Uh, another would be this, that um, you are in a situation where day after day after day, you're having to stand strong, you're having to be brave, you're having to be courageous just to make it, just to exist, just to keep going. I want to show you a story. Uh, you see, there's three women. They were women of the year back in 2002. And um, there's three of them. I'm only going to uh, tell you about two in the interest of time. <clears throat> the first one is Cynthia Cooper. And Cynthia Cooper was a uh, lower-level VP of WorldCom, which was a huge trading company at that point. And she discovered uh, that WorldCom, and this is just blows my mind, that uh, they were fraudulently reporting almost $4 billion. I, some of you in accountants explain that to me. I, I don't know how you hide $4, $4 billion. Uh, I, I think I'd miss that in my paycheck. But nevertheless, uh, she, she discovered what was happening. <clears throat> so she uh, sent out an email. She talked to her direct supervisor. Uh, finally, she went and met with the CFO and talked to him. And this was after uh, numerous emails she had sent out and numerous memos she'd sent out, and she went and sat down with the CFO, and he said, look, we've got this. We've got an outside auditing agency that's looking at this, and they're taking care of everything. You don't have to worry about it. Just, just stand down and, and just know we've got it. So uh, just stand down and don't worry about this, and let's don't talk about this anymore. Let us get through this time. Let us get it all figured out, and you don't worry about it. Well, weeks went on, months went on. She sent a few more, and she realized nothing was being done. So she had a choice. She, she said, I, she, she says, she's a believer. She said, I was a believer in Christ, and I could not live in my faith any longer without doing something. So uh, she got together with a couple other folks, and they began to uncover, and they, they s- sent it in. And it was going to happen anyway. Uh, but the, the, certainly WorldCom ended up, obviously you know the story on that. Uh, but what was amazing is she knew she was probably going to lose her job. Uh, she knew it was going to be a crazy cost. And she knew a lot of people knew about it, but nobody else would say anything. And she, here she is, a woman in a male-dominated executive company, and she steps up. That's bravery. That's after months and months. That's after being told by your direct supervisor not to do anything, leave it alone. Uh, you are not, you are not to, to mess with this. <laughs> we'll take care of it. 
So that takes fortitude. That was bravery. Uh, let's jump to the last one because we're familiar with Sharon. Some of you with Sharon Watkins because we're more familiar with Enron here in Texas. Some of you have come from Houston. You very well know this story of what happened with Enron. Um, and Sharon Watkins was in a similar situation. She began to uncover a lot of fraudulent activity. <clears throat> she reported it to her supervisor. She began to send memos to the board. And matter of fact, they came out and found she had seven pages over seven months of memos that she had sent out. She even went and sat directly with the chairman of the board, who was Ken Lay at the time, and told him, look, our reporting is off. It's fraudulent. Uh, we have to correct this. And she gave him a course of action. This is what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to go public at some point. And here are the things we can do. And he told her, We've got this. Leave it alone, and don't don't say anything with it. And matter of fact, after that meeting, the next day, uh, one of the corporate att- attorneys came in and told her, "Look, if you decide to go any further or to expose any of this information, you need to realize that in the state of Texas, uh, whistleblowers uh, are not protected, and we will come after you with the full force of everything we have legally, and we will destroy you." And so she went home, and she said for for weeks already she had been discouraged. She began to cry. She didn't want to get up. She didn't want to move. But she realized that she had to do something. And so she spoke out, and uh, we know what happened with Enron. By the way, those were all going to happen, but who is the person who is going to step forward and do what was right? And so in this particular case, that was Sharon Watkins, who also is a strong believer in Christ Jesus. She said, my faith would no longer let me live a lie. And so when we think about bravery, sometimes it's not in that moment. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's in the everyday life. Now, Scripture talks about um, motivations for bravery. So one particular type is this. One is a wrongly motivated. Sometimes people do courageous things or they make take big risk uh, on really behalf of their flesh, not of God. So here's a passage in the book of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. It says, And many will father, follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. So what's he saying here? Many will follow their sensuality. In other words, their greed or uh, simply their lust, whatever it is, and they'll go, this is what I want. God, this is what I want you to do. God, this is, this is what I need. And so, God, I want you to do it. Remember what the definition of faith, doing everything you honestly and ethically can and trusting the rest of God. Now, I've told this story before. This happened early in the life of the church a couple of times. Uh, I had two different people come to me and go, Pastor, I need you to pray for me. And here's what I need you to pray. I've been buying a lot of lottery tickets. I got, some, got myself in some little financial trouble and but this is going to fix it, and I really think this is what God wants me to do, and I need you to pray over it, and look, I'll give a big piece to church if I win. So you pray for it. It'd be a win-win. No, that would be a greed-greed is, is what that would be. That's not God. Sometimes we hear this voice that we want to hear in our head because we keep telling ourselves, I want this, I want this. I need this shiny new car. That's what I need, and we keep telling ourselves, I know I can't afford it, but I'm going to ask God to provide. That's presuming upon the mercies of God, and that's being led by our flesh and not by our spirit, okay? And sometimes we do that. Sometimes there's something we want, and then we try to attach God to it. Number two, what is rightly motivated, scripturally motivated courage? Well, let's look at Psalms chapter 130, excuse me, Psalms 31. Be strong and let your heart take courage. 
all you who wait for the Lord. Notice, notice what the scripture tells us. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait upon the Lord. Faith is doing everything you honestly and ethically can and waiting on the Lord to do the rest. Most of us, myself included, don't like to wait. But after you've done what you can righteously, then we trust God. It's not we trust God and we don't act. We act righteously, we trust God. That's a picture of spiritual courage, courage, of biblical bravery. All right, with that understood, where does bravery come from? And we just have a, we're just going to go through, fly through this real quick. I'm going to have them put these on the screen right here. From the forgiveness that we've received, because Christ has forgiven us. He who knew no sins became sin that we might become what? The righteousness of God. It's not because of our goodness, but because of Christ's goodness. And we put our trust and hope in God. That was a scripture that I just read to you. In Joshua 1, 9, the Bible tells us that uh, be strong and courageous. God's strength is given to us as we recognize 1 John 4, 4. For greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. That the Spirit of God is stronger, is stronger in your heart as you apply Scripture, as you pray, as you seek the heart of God. Your spirit connects with God, and God strengthens your spirit. And the Bible tells us in prayer from Psalms 138, as we commune with him, it strengthens our spirits, which therefore strengthens our courage. Let's look at the story here, the great example that is given to us in Scripture in Matthew chapter 14. Now, this story is not to be mistaken with Matthew chapter 8. Earlier, six chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus goes out on the boat with the disciples, and he's there. Remember, he's asleep, and the storm starts to, to, to rip and, and roar, and Jesus is asleep, and the disciples go and wake him up, say, Master, don't you care that we drown? And he, he gets up, and what does he say? He says, peace be still, and he stops the winds and the waves, and they say something at this point. Does anybody remember what they say? They say this. They go, who is this that even the winds and the seas obey? Who is this man that the winds and the seas obey? Now, with that story in mind, let's look at this one. This is six chapters later, so we're probably talking months later. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Now, where are they? At this point, Jesus has just fed the multitude. He's fed the 5,000. They're leaving, and Jesus does this. Jesus says, the Bible says, immediately he made. See, Notice the third word. He made the disciples get in the boat and head toward the other side. They didn't say, hey, let's go take a trip. They didn't say, Jesus, you want to come ride with us? That's not what happened. He made them. And literally the word compel is what the Greek means. He compelled them. So he is directly telling them to go get in this boat, and Jesus knows that what's going to happen. There's a storm coming. Jesus tells them, get in a boat that's going to take them in the storm. And he doesn't tell them the storm's coming. But he tells them to get in the boat, and he knows it's coming. What does that tell me? That tells me that sometimes God purposefully leads us into storms. Now, some of us, we don't like that in our theology. We take that out. Go, that's not my kind of theology. Well, it's, that's, that's what it becomes. It becomes your theology at that point. Because Scripture does not t- teach us uh, that if we're obedient, if we do everything right, then we don't have to worry about storms. Sometimes, could it be 
and I think there's biblical evidence that this is a sound truth, that you go through storms because of your faith, because you are obedient. And that's exactly what's transpiring right here in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Jesus is making his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismisses the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now we see Jesus doing this time and time again, going up on the mountain. Why does he go to the mountain? Because this is where he meets God. This is where he speaks. His strength is renewed through prayer as he communicates with God the Father. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So Jesus has sent the disciples onto the Sea of Galilee. My wife and I were there about five or six years ago, and uh, we were on a pretty big boat that held maybe a hundred people. And we went across that sea and probably took us 20, 25 minutes. And I remember it was kind of, it was a little bit rough. It was a beautiful day. And I remember thinking, I would not want to be on a small boat, even on this beautiful day out here. So they are out there in a boat. Uh, and remember, this is 2,000 years ago. It's probably not a real big boat. It probably holds a, a dozen, 13, 14 people. And Jesus has sent him out at night, by the way. And I want you to go to the other side. Depending on where you are, it's anywhere from 7 to 12 miles, depending on where, where they had taken off from. And so scholars estimate probably 8 to 10 miles. So let's say, let's say it's 10 miles. So they're about 5, 6 miles into it, and they've been out there for a while. What should take them about 2 hours, they've been out there for probably 6 at this point. The Scripture says uh, that at this point, the boat's a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against him. And in the fourth watch, the fourth watch is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Now, they're leaving right before dark, and now it's 3 to 6 a.m. So they've been out there a minimum of six hours, probably more like eight hours, and they're just fighting, they're fighting the, the, the waves. Now, something else that's significant for us to remember about this is that many of the ancients, ancient cultures, and even some of the Hebrews thought that Underneath the waters is where the evil spirits lived. It's where those demonic spirits may have existed. And it's where the evil would, would reign, so to speak. And so certainly the Greeks and Romans often believed this. And it, it would even permeate into Judaism. So there was this belief that that's where the evil dwelt, underneath the waters. But they're on the boat. They should be fine. But it's at night. But now the wind is whipping. And so to speak, the demons are coming out. This might be what they're thinking. Uh, this would have been pretty common thought at this time, uh, the kind of superstition, if you want to say it that way. And the Bible says, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. In the next verse, verse 26, but when the disciples saw him on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now, why would they think it's a ghost? Because of the superstition of what is underneath the sea. And when it's whipping and it's raging, the, those evil spirits, those demons are, so to speak, whipping up the water. They're trying to kill us. And then they see an image. They see what might be a spirit or a ghost, they think. What's that walking on the water? And the Bible says, Jesus said to them immediately, take heart. That's where we get our word, be courageous. Be courageous. Be brave. It is I. 
Now, in our translation, that probably doesn't stand out as strongly as it would have been to the Jews who are reading Matthew. And Matthew is uh, regarded as the disciple whose book was most intended for the Jews. It's for all of us, but there are certain nuances and fulfillment that if you didn't have a good background in Judaism, you wouldn't quite get. And so this is probably one of them. Remember how God revealed himself in Exodus, I am. When you translate this from the Greek, you can translate, it is, take heart, I am. I am is here. I am. So there's an, an obviously, uh, obviously there's a divine play here. And Jesus is revealing himself. He's walking on the waters. Now, why else might, they, might Jesus be doing this? Well, if you were a Jew and you had studied well, you would probably be familiar with the Torah and with the Old Testament prophets and wisdom literature. And in Job 9.8, as Job is describing God, how does he describe God? As who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. This is only something God could do. Psalms 89.9, the psalmist, as he's describing God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And Jesus has stilled them. And now he is walking on the water. Something only God could do. You see the divinity of Christ being displayed here. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you and walk on the water. Now, you know, interpreters and scholars are all over the place on this. Why, why, why did Peter do this? And what does this mean? And what does this tell us? And what should we think about Peter? Some would say, you know what, Peter, some scholars say, you know, the problem is Peter's just being impetuous here. He's just being emotional. He's always saying things and doing things. This is just another time where Peter is acting before he thinks. And so, Peter, you know, what do you think you're doing telling, Lord, if it's really you, you tell me to come. What is he doing giving Jesus commands? So some scholars would say, Peter's completely out of line. That's one road thinking. The opposite side would be, you know what? Peter was only one enough brave enough to get up and go to Jesus. At least those other 11 were just sitting there. At least he got up and, and at least he tried. Let's applaud Peter. You know what? And I, I think those are probably two e- extremes. So I made up my own. Um, could it be, and by the way, we don't know. Could it be that Peter was scared? Remember, courage is not that you have no fear. Courage is being afraid and doing it anyway. Could it be that Peter was thinking, I'm not going to make it into a boat. And if that's Jesus, I want to be over there with him. Because every time I'm with him, everything's fine. But I don't think I'm going to make it. Could it be that's what he's thinking? I, I don't know. But here's what we do know is Jesus uses this instant. There's something for us to learn here. He says, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come, Peter. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, and started, he started walking toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. He was focused in on Christ. He made this request. He doesn't know what he's really asking, but he sees it, and it's the moment, and he goes, Jesus, let me come walk over there to you. And Jesus says, come on. And he gets out, and he starts walking, and then the Bible says, then he notices all the winds and the waves and his superstitions, and he starts to sink. And Jesus reaches out and he saves him. When Peter cries, as we all must at some point in our life, Jesus, save me. Peter knows he can't make it on his own. Peter knows he will drown, he will die. And so he reaches out to Christ and says, Jesus, save me. 
And then we see what happened these last two verses. Tell us, I believe, why this story happened, what we are to learn. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? By the way, it's not that our faith, sometimes we think, oh, if I could just have more faith, if I can just muster it up. It's not about you mustering up some more emotion. It's the object of your faith. It's releasing and trusting your faith. So many times we think it's this big get-it-together when really it's a release to Christ Jesus. It's saying, Jesus, I believe you're enough. I believe you will meet my need, and I'm going to do everything I possibly can, and I'm going to trust you. And, Lord, you know my faith is weak. Help my unbelief. My object of faith, it's what's your real object? Sometimes the problem with our faith is not the amount. It's what our faith really is in. Jesus, I'm asking you, but I don't know if you're going to come through, so I'm going to be fine. So I'm going to probably manipulate the circumstances just in case you don't. And then the object of our faith becomes ourselves. This is the object of the faith is Christ. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got out of the boat, the wind ceased. And when they, excuse me, when they got into the boat, as soon as Jesus got into the boat, Augustine says the boat is a metaphor for the church here. As soon as they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And what did they do? Remember what they said last time in Matthew chapter 8? Who is this man that the waves and the sea obey? That's not what they say this time. This is what they say this time. And those in the boat worship him. They said, truly, you are the son of God. The divine revelation what, what Jesus is doing is letting there be no doubt. I and the Father are one. We now have the luxury of looking back and seeing that Jesus was fully man and fully God. They're trying to work that out. How can he be God and be man? It didn't fit their theological paradigms. But they start to see that he is more than just a man. You don't worship men. Certainly if you're a Jew, you never worship a man they begin to recognize the divinity of Christ and they worship him. Sometimes for you to really understand who Jesus is, it means entering into a storm that Christ has led you into. And you may think, why God? That's a hard one, isn't it? And to be brave and to be faithful and to trust. It reminds me of the story of Harriet Tubman. I love the story of Harriet Tubman. I read it a couple of years ago and was just so inspired by it. <clears throat> Harriet Tubman was born in 1822 as an African-American slave. And she was born on a plantation. And she, all her work, all her life, she'd grown up working. And uh, she worked on a cotton field. And she, when she was 13, she was regarded as one of the, one of the best slaves on the plantation. She uh, was fast. She was strong. She was trustworthy. So one day, her owner sent her into town to take some messages and run some errands and come back. And on her way uh, to take those messages, um, she ran into this other slave owner who lived in a nearby plantation. And he told her that one of his slaves, the boy that she was familiar with his name, had just ran away. And she goes, he's running down this road. She goes, here's what I want you to do, Harriet. I want you to take off and go catch him because I know you're fast. Everybody knows you can run. And you get there. Uh, take this rope and tie him up, and then I'll come, and I'll give you a little, little reward, and I'll tell you, I'll tell him, uh, whatever the guy's name, Marty, whatever his name was, what you've done. So take off. So he com- pretty much compelled her or commanded her to do it, 
as she was running, she was thinking, there's no way I'm going to catch this guy and tie him up. Matter of fact, when she did get to him, she said, I- I'll help you. And so she said, I'll, I'll be a distraction, whatever you need. So they worked out a plan. He was going to go into town and get some supplies and stuff. And when he was, he was in a particular store, she stood at the door watching uh, to see if anybody would notice. And sure enough, that owner came running up. And as he came running up, she was standing at the door. He saw, he saw that boy trying to get out. And so he picked up a metal pipe and he threw it as hard as he could at him. But it didn't hit him because Harriet was standing before the boy. It hit her in the head, knocked her out. For two days, she's in a coma. Uh, they don't know if she's going to live or not. They bring her back. They put her under a shed. And finally, she wakes up after two days. There's still bleeding coming out of her ear. She's got a tremendous headache. Uh, matter of fact, she would have migraines and hallucinations from that point forward. And so they put her back out in the field after a couple of days, and she works there. But she's never quite the same. She's had a traumatic brain injury. And so she's, not, she's never the same workhorse that she had been. <laughs> But she continues to work there. And then when she's 26, she gets to where she can't hardly do it at all. Uh, And so her owner decides that he's going to sell her. And he realizes he can't get anything for her as a normal slave. So he's going to sell her into the chain gang, which was the worst place you could be sold. Because you'd be taken down south, uh, placed chains around your, your feet, and you would live with them the rest of your life. They never come off. And you'd work in the mines. And so you might be tied to five, six, seven people the rest of your life. And that's the way you lived. So it was kind of the worst thing that could happen. And when she found out about it, she began to cry. And she began to cry out to God. And she said, God, change his mind or take him out. And uh, she began to pray that, and she began to have those visions of leaving again and of running away. And uh, she felt like God was just telling her to trust him. And the next day when she woke up, her owner had died. <laughs> and I'm not encouraging you to pray that. That's not biblical. Okay, I'm not gonna... But her owner had died. And so she knew that God had answered her prayer. She knew that God was providing for her. So at this point, um, she begins to plan her escape. And so sure enough, she escapes days later, goes on up to Pennsylvania with the Underground Railroad. And when she gets there, she realizes that she feels like God is calling her to come and to bring others back. And she, she gets the title of kind of the uh, modern-day Moses at that point. And a lot of great stories. Love the stories. There's one particular I'll tell you. She was, uh, she was taken, and we don't know how many she did. Uh, they don't have an, there's no way to accurately count, but it was probably somewhere, some say 70 and some say as much as three or 400, but let's say a, a couple of hundred probably. Uh, but one time, she, and she never got caught and she's always doing it. They know who she is. She's doing this at night. She's going back and forth from Maryland to Pennsylvania. She has these paths that she's using. Uh, but sometimes she, she would just kind of receive this word or this vision from God. She'd be praying. And she would say, all right, we're not going this way. We're going that way. And oftentimes she'd be right. In one particular instance, uh, they were headed down this trail. It was at night, and the moon was pretty bright. And uh, they, they had about a half a mile before they got to this big bend. And she thought, she said, she just started thinking, something's not right. She went and prayed, and she came back, and she goes, we're not supposed to go that way. And she's got, you know, 15, 20 people with her, and, and she said, we, we need to go over here. The only other way is we'll go over here and we'll cross this river. And they go, well, some of us can't swim. We can't do that. They go, how deep is it? She goes, I don't know. And she said, but that's what we need to do. That's what God's telling me to do. And so there was a lot of argument. She goes, she goes we're going. And so she went, and they went, and the water never got above their chest, and they made it across. And they found out the next day that there were a whole group of slave traders that were waiting right there. Uh, to catch them. And there was just story after story, and they were asking her, how did, how did you know? And she goes, God just told me. And she goes, it all started when she got hit in the head with a metal pipe. <laughs> Isn't that amazing how God redeems things? Here's a girl 
born into slavery, growing into cruelty. She's 13 years old. She's just trying to help this boy who's certainly going to be beaten or killed if he's captured. And because she's trying to protect, she gets hit in the head with a metal pipe. She has a traumatic brain injury. She's never the same again. She deals with migraines and hallucinations the rest of her life. But she gets still because she can't work like she did because she can't do a lot of things. And she just starts praying. And she just starts listening. And she starts hearing God speak. And then there's a time where she's going to go to the, the worst possible scenario, the chain gang. It was like hell on earth. And she's praying. She's calling out to God, God, what do you want me to do? She had felt like she had received visions before to leave and to take people with her, but she had never been brave enough. And then God answered this prayer, and she knows she must go. She goes, and then she keeps coming back. Even though her her picture was up, she was one of the most wanted slaves. She was one of the most uh, wanted freedom fighters. Everybody is looking for her, and yet she never got caught. And what is the biggest, what do you attribute to other than God? She got hit in the head with a pipe. She got still. She began to listen. Let's just do it this way. Maybe God's calling to do something. You probably ought to do it before you get hit in the head with a pipe. (laughs) Some of us, and I'm not saying it always works this way, but sometimes God leads us into the, the door path to get hit in the head with a pipe. Sometimes God leads us on the lake with a storm so that we stop, so that we listen, so that we will obey. So I want to give you four principles from this story that I see right here. The first one is this. The first principle as we look at this scripture that I see right here is this. Believe. Believe. Believe God at his word. Act. Belief isn't just a stand still and acknowledge. It pisteo, John 3, 16, for whosoever believeth. It's an active word. It's actively pursuing and saying, I believe God and I take action action based on my faith. Number two, the next, way, the next thing that we would see about being brave that we learn from this is to obey. Obey. Peter asked, Jesus said, come, and he stepped out. When God calls you, when he said, you know what, it's time to take that step of faith. It's time to be baptized. It's time to commit your life. It's time to serve. It's time to get out of your comfort zone. Whatever it is, once God, one God, God speaks, once God gives direction through Scripture, we've got to obey. It's not up, well, I know I asked, but God, that's not exactly what I wanted to do. That's not what I was thinking about. Then we miss it. That's, that's cowardice is what it is. We're not really believing. Number three, to be brave scripturally is to focus. Be still and know that I am God. Take heart, be courageous, and wait upon the Lord. Focus on what is really most important. Focus on your faith and the image of Christ that's being drawn. Focus on the opportunity that he's given you to make Christ known. Focus on what is most important. And then fourthly, hold on. Peter had to say, Jesus, save me, and he just had to hold on. I love that Herod Tubman, there are times that she just had to hold on, where she said, I would just literally pass out because of the pain, and I would just say, Jesus, hold me. Hold on. Believe, but don't just believe, obey. 
But don't just obey. Focus and hold on. What are you holding on to today? Let's pray. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And God, I thank you for the opportunity to obey. I thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to not just believe, but to obey and to trust you. And Lord, to focus on you, not on our circumstances, but on what you're trying to teach us, on what you're trying to tell us, on how you're trying to grow us. For Lord, you have something so much bigger and more eternal than just our comfort, than just us getting out of situations that are uncomfortable or painful. Lord, I pray that you remind us that sometimes you use our pain to not only grow us, but to grow your kingdom. People are most drawn to Christ, not just because lives are good, but because even in the suffering, we still recognize you as our God and Savior. Lord, help us to be brave enough to trust you when it feels like it's too hard. And we give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.